This special edition of the podcast is dedicated in the merit of the speedy and total recovery of Yehudit Batsara, who recently contracted the coronavirus. We hope and pray that she beats the virus completely and quickly with no lingering effects. This is indeed a special edition of the podcast because it's going to be cross-posted on two of my channels, The Ethics Podcast and The Flagship This Jewish Life. And the reason for that is because whenever there is such an important and valuable subject, I will release it across several podcast channels. And the subject of this episode is maybe the most important subject that there is in Torah and really in our lives, so it certainly qualifies. As always, my email address is rabbiwalby at gmail.com. We are up to chapter 4, Mishnah number 21, and today we're going to do Mishnah number 21 and Mishnah number 22. Rabbi Yaakov Omer, Rabbi Yaakov says, Ha'olamazeh, this world, Domeliprozdar, is like a corridor, Bifnei Ha'olamaba, before the world to come. Haskein Atzmecha Beprozdar, prepare yourself in the corridor, so that you may enter the banquet hall. So that's mission number 21. Mission number 22, he would say, It is better one hour of repentance and good deeds in this world. That is greater than the entire life of of the world to come. And better is one hour of spiritual bliss in the world to come from all the life in this world. So this is a very fundamental teaching in the Mishnah. I would argue it's the single most important Mishnah in the book. And it talks about the single most important principle in Jewish philosophy, namely the idea of the world to come, the idea of the afterlife. Now, this is a huge subject. And today, please God, we will scratch the surface, we'll make some headway, but it's important for us to remember there is essentially a world out there that we are not going to be covering. So he's teaching us that there is a relationship between this world and the next world, this world, meaning the world that we're in right now, the configuration that humans are currently made up of, there's a relationship between that and the world to come, the upcoming world, the afterlife, and that is similar to a hallway, a corridor leading to a ballroom. Now, in this world, we're in the corridor, and we're going to the ballroom to next world. That's the first Mishnah. And the second Mishnah is contrasting the benefits of this world versus the next world, and the benefits of the next world versus this world. In this world, one hour of mitzvos and good deeds outweighs the entire Olamaba, vis-a-vis mitzvos, vis-a-vis good deeds. Only when we are here can we do mitzvos, and the single opportunity that we have over here outweighs an entire lifetime, an entire eons, eternity in Olamaba we can't do a mitzvah we could do in one hour over here. Conversely, when it comes to pleasure, spiritual bliss, one second, one minute of spiritual bliss in Olamaba outweighs all the potential pleasure that we could have here. This world is the world of mitzvos, of doing, 
And next world, Olamaba, is a world of enjoyment of consumption. So like I said, this is a very critical subject in Jewish philosophy, and I would argue again that it's the most important one. In fact, in Jewish literature and in Jewish philosophy, the number one question determining whether someone lived a good life, whether someone fulfilled their duty in this world, is if they achieved the coveted invitation to be invited to Olam to be invited to the afterlife. A life well-lived is one, by definition, that results in a person getting invited into Olam So, for example, a story that we've referenced in the past. When the Talmud tells a story of Rabbi Akiva's martyrdom and his grisly death at the hands of the Romans, it gives us, of course, the backstory. It tells us the Romans made an edict, they made a decree, anyone who studies Torah, teaches Torah publicly, is going to be executed. And Rabbi Akiva disobeys that order. And he tells someone that just as a fish cannot live out of water, a Jew cannot live out of Torah. So yes, the Romans are threatening us. And yes, we know that they may be quite brutal in their treatment of people who study Torah publicly. But what other choice do we have? It's our lifeblood And it makes as much sense as telling a fish, hey, there's fishermen trying to catch you, come out of the water. Because you could only have life in the water. Similarly, the Jew, even though there's fishermen, there's nets, there's dangers in the water for us in life, but it's preferable than for us to jump out of the water, to jump out of the oxygen-giving Torah. He's captured, and he's imprisoned, and eventually he is killed in a brutal, horrific, macabre fashion. They flay his skin off, and as he's being killed in this terrible way, his students are present, and he's saying the Shema, and he seems to be very happy about it, because he finally has the opportunity to give his life up for God. And the Talmud concludes with a postscript that when he said the final word of the Shema, Echad, his soul departed. And the Talmud tells us that there was a heavenly prophetic voice that proclaimed, Ashrecha Rabbi Akiva, praiseworthy are you Rabbi Akiva, She'ata mezuman l'chayei ha'olam abba, for you are invited to the life of Olam abba. When it takes the totality of Rabbi Akiva's life and his martyrdom, The way it's captured is that he was invited. His deeds, his life, his trip down the corridor resulted in him being able to navigate past the doors and enter the ballroom. He is welcomed. He's invited to Olam Now, this particular verbiage is actually used elsewhere in the Talmud, a bunch of places in the Talmud. So, for example, in the book of Bava Basra, page 75b, we read... Again, this idea that Olam Abba, the afterlife, so to speak, is invitation only. It tells us, Jerusalem of below, of this world, is dissimilar to Jerusalem of Olam Abba. In this world, anyone who wants to go to Jerusalem 
is able to enter. You want to go to the temple? Even non-Jews went to the temple and offered sacrifices. This temple in Jerusalem, in this world, was open for all. It was a house of prayer for everyone, even the nations. However, the Jerusalem of the heavenly world, the Jerusalem of Olam Abba, ain't Olam Elah Mizumanumla. Only those who are invited, only those who are bearers of a golden ticket, only those people can enter. So perhaps the most important question that we can ask ourselves is, what do I need to do to get my hands on an invitation? How can I make sure that I, when I'm done my trip down the corridor, I am armed with whatever is needed to navigate passage and to enter Olamaba. So it's a very important subject. And we have to study it very carefully to try to understand it as best as we can. Now, I would point out that not only, again, in my opinion, is it the most important subject in Jewish philosophy, you can make a good argument that it's also the most enigmatic subject in Jewish philosophy. In fact, much about the subject and much of what we're told about the subject in the Talmud is all about how it's so beyond us. It's so impenetrable. So, for example, the Talmud in the book of Brachos on page 34b tells us, Kal Hanavim Kulam, all the Nevi'im, all the prophets, all of them, they only prophesied for the days of Messiah. Their vision extended far beyond their current sphere of existence. Their purview was grand. They saw the future. They saw the Messianic times. And they regaled us with the stories. They endowed us with the stories. They gave us visions of the future. But it's limited. It's only to the days of Mashiach. Aval, but, Olam Abba, Olam Abba, the next world, the subject of our Mishnah, quotes a verse in Isaiah, I in low rasa, and I cannot see it. Even the most talented seers, the visionaries, the prophets, they see everything, they can't see Olam Abba. So if the prophets cannot see Olam Abba, what hope do we have to try to penetrate this very difficult subject? That's a very good question that we have to ask or we have to appreciate before we dive into it. Now, even though we're told that we cannot see it, there's all kinds of insights and hints and clues to understand it, the subject or at least to understand what it is that we don't understand or to understand why we cannot see it. So, for example, the book of Brachos in the Talmud tells us, this is on page 17a, it tells us what Olam Abba is not. And this is the quote. This world is dissimilar to the next world, to Olam Abba, to the afterlife. In the afterlife, there's no eating, there's no drinking, there's no procreation, there's no business and commerce. There's no envy. There's no hatred. There's no competition. So now we know a lot about what there isn't. Okay, well, what is there? It is only 
Tzadikim, the righteous, again, bearers of the golden ticket, people who were invited to the party, they're sitting, and their crowns are on their heads, even though that's not a precise translation, it's actually in their heads, what that means, big subject. Tzadikim, the righteous, sitting with their crowns on their head or in their head, and they are absorbing the grandeur and the glory of the Shekhinah of the Divine Presence. So we're given a hint as to what this world is about. It's the righteous, okay, bearers of the golden ticket, people who were invited, and they are basking in the pleasure of God. Now what that means, you know, we have a hard time fathoming what God even is, because by definition, it's beyond human comprehension to really understand it. We could acknowledge it, we could feel the connection to God, we could recognize how it's totally logical that God does exist, but the fact that God is infinite and we are finite means that on a construction level, on a physiological level, we cannot really visualize God. And if we cannot visualize God, how can we visualize the pleasure of basking in God's presence? So it makes sense that even the prophets, who understand God maybe more than anyone else, above, when we're actually in the presence of God, it's that that that's beyond them. But we're told here is that there's a certain spiritual pleasure that outweighs all pleasures that we could possibly conceive in this world. This world, the pleasures that we have are associated with our body, physical pleasures. And if you take the totality, the sum of all physical pleasures, and you capture it into a pill, and you enjoy it, amazing, tingling sensation, incredible pleasure, the greatest pleasure in this world doesn't equal the level up, the higher dimension of the spiritual level, even the most minor spiritual pleasure that is present in Olam Abba. So we're given a little bit of an outline, I would say a skeletal outline of what Olam Abba is. It's the pleasure of the righteous, the bearers of the golden ticket that they get to experience in the presence of God in the next world. Now, there are many facets of Olam Abba that we could perhaps explore. So, what exactly is this pleasure of Olam Abba? What is it? It sounds pretty boring, sitting with God, relaxing with God. What does that even mean? It's not something we could even appreciate. What is the pleasure of Olam Abba? It's a very difficult question, and the Talmud does give us some clues. There's a Talmud that we've perhaps spoken in the past that talks about the three things in this world that in some way overlap with Olam Abba. So that's one question. What is Olam Abba? Where is Olam Abba? I think in our heads, we tend to picture this, this one world, and then maybe when someone dies, they're going to be ushered to some other venue, some other location, some other place, a different world, if you will. The cosmos, the galaxies. It's not so clear. The Ramam tells us that Olam Abba exists now as much as it ever existed and ever will exist. Olamaba is a different dimension, not a different coordinates, not a different location. But to understand exactly how that works, it's a subject, again, of tremendous, voluminous literature. When is Olamaba? What's the timeline? How does someone end up in Olamaba? Like, what's the process? We know what happens when someone dies, at least from our perspective. Okay, the body and soul are separated. The body stops working. It becomes a major liability very quick. It starts to decompose. 
and it starts to become putrid. And of course, traditionally, the body is buried. And what happens to the soul, what happens to the person's consciousness, is a great mystery to us. And of course, it's probably the most intriguing subject out there. Because everyone's so curious about it. Every one of us knows that no matter how long we live, eventually the body is going to stop working and we're going to die. And we hope that we have a dignified funeral and we hope that we're buried in the Jewish tradition and we hope that we have some good roommates, so to speak, the neighboring people in the cemetery, good people to spend some time with. And we hope that we're safe and we hope we're okay. And we hope only good things happen to us, but we don't really know. And how we get from the point when someone dies and their body is interred in the ground and the soul goes to parts unknown, the consciousness goes to parts unknown, and how that actually brings about, like, what are the steps? What about heaven and hell and resurrection and, uh, and Ganeden, the, the paradise and judgment and accounting and reckoning and body, soul? Are they going to reunite? What's going to look like? There's lots of questions that, of course, swirl around when we do the uncomfortable thing of thinking about this. Another important facet of this grand subject. Maybe the most critical question is the one that we briefly spoke about earlier. What are the concrete steps that I could do? Follow the formula, follow the how-to guide to make sure that when I get down the corridor, when I finish my trip here in the hallway, I have the invitation that ensures that I'm a member of that exclusive club. It's a big subject and it really dominates a lot of really, I would say, Jewish philosophy when it's dealing with the critical what are we living for questions. Our Mishnah, or our two Mishnayos, focus on the relationship between this world and the next world. This world is like the corridor. It's leading to a ballroom. It's leading to a banquet hall. It's leading to Olam and we're told, prepare yourself, fix yourself in the prosder, in the corridor. Prepare yourself for what is coming. You're here going to a destination, and your job is to make sure that you are ready, that you are prepared, that you are fixed for that world of consumption. That very basic idea I think it's a very deep idea, but it's also perhaps quite disturbing. What it's telling us is that our life here, as we are currently constructed, there's a soul, it's inhabiting our body, and we live a life. We grew up, we were a small child, we had parents, hopefully we had a good upbringing, and we went to school, and every night we go to sleep, and then we eat, and we try to make a living, and we have a family, hopefully, and we try to get a job, and there's politics, and there's sports, and there's entertainment, and there's coronavirus. This whole world that we know, the Mishnah is telling us, this is not the reason why we were created. This is not the end game. This is what they call in boxing, the undercard before the main event. 
This is the opening act before the main act. Here, we're supposed to prepare for the main event. This world is the corridor of preparation. Olamaba, well, that's when you're supposed to enjoy it. That is the goal. Like that, I think, should, for, for us, it should create some, some dissonance, some, some, some readjusting, some realignment, some rethinking. What? The mission is telling us that our life here, the only life that we in our conscience have ever known, is actually not the real thing. It's not the real life. This is not why I was created. It's for the next world. And the Mishnah here elaborates, again, this idea of a relation between these two worlds. Here, and only here, is when you could do mitzvos, when you could do preparations. You have to prepare yourself in the corridor so you can enjoy the ballroom. And in this world, you have one minute, one hour, one second of mitzvos and good deeds. That outweighs all the preparation that you could do in the ballroom. Once you're in the banquet hall, it's too late to do any preparations. So this world is so valuable because for what it offers, it offers opportunity to prepare to do mitzvos. You can't get any of that once you're in the next world. And of course, conversely, the reward and the pleasure of Olam you can't get any of that over here. So these two worlds are very distinct. In Olam the smallest, most minor mitzvah is inaccessible to you, not if you pay a hundred billion dollars. It's beyond. That's it. You can't do it. There's a famous story of the Goan of Vilna, the great giant of the 18th century, on his deathbed. And he was holding his tzitzis. He was holding the mitzvah that we have, the strings that we have on this, on the corner of our garment. And he says, he's weeping, and he's telling us, he's telling his students, he's telling his family, in this world, for a few kopecks, for a few pennies, you could buy yourself a mitzvah that once you're dead, nothing in the world could possibly equal that. Here is the only place to do mitzvahs. There, that's the only place to have the reward for mitzvahs that's incomparable to any pleasure that we could have over here. If you combine, you make this this magic pill of all the conceivable pleasures in this world, it won't equate the most minor pleasure of Olam Here, and only here, we could do mitzvos, which earned the doer Olam there. In Olam that's the only place that you can get Olam pleasures. In this past week's Parsha, Parsha Svazchan, the very last verse of the Parsha, this is a verse that's very easy for Americans to remember. It's Deuteronomy 7.11. V'shamar mitzvah. You should guard the mitzvah. V'shachukim. And the edicts. V'shamishpatim. And the statutes. Asher anochi mitzavcha hayom la'asosam. That I am commanding you today to do them. This is Moshe again urging the people not to depart from the mitzvahs. Hayom, today I'm commanding you to do it, says Rashi, quoting from the Talmud. Today you do it. But today you don't get reward. Tomorrow, in the next world, that is when you get the reward. Now the Ram tells us that the reason for this dichotomy, the reason for this distinction between these two worlds, is because a person is oriented differently in the two worlds. 
In this world, of course, we have a soul, but primarily we're a body. And the mitzvos are mitzvos that we do with our body. And once the body and soul are separated, the body becomes useless, worse than useless. It becomes a liability. You got to put it in the ground or else it, it starts to rot and become putrid. Once you're dead, you can't do any more mitzvos because the mitzvos are only oriented for someone who has a body. All mobile pleasures, those are experienced with the soul. And therefore, when the soul is captured within the body, the subtle pleasures of the soulful pleasures really can't be experienced because the soul is muffled, it is absorbed inside the body. Now, I want to point this out. This is a a little bit of of a side point, a little bit of a tangent. I made a list of exceptions to this rule. There's a rule. Only here we could do mitzvahs. Only here we could do good deeds. Once we're dead, too late. Only in Olamaba we could get the Olamaba pleasures. Beforehand, we can't really get it. There's actually some exceptions to this rule. So, for example, a Talmud that we've quoted in the past, the Talmud tells us in the book of Brachos, page 57b, there are three things that are like Olamaba, that are somewhat similar to Olamaba. And it gives a list of three things that maybe you could catch a scent, a whiff, a small flicker of the aroma of Olamaba, even though you are here. The Rambam, in his spectacular, authoritative, sweeping treatise on Olamaba, he tells us that Olamaba is beyond us. The pleasure of Olamaba is beyond us. It's inaccessible initially. But with hard work, you indeed can access Olamaba like pleasures even in this world. Olamaba pleasures are initially inaccessible. With hard work, you can really connect to it. Meaning, even though the soul is currently captured within the body, you still have a soul here. And therefore, the ability to connect to soulful pleasures is theoretically still possible because you have a soul buried within your body. If you could reconnect to your soul and identify with it and somehow even in this world become soul first, you can actually tap into that pleasure that exceeds all physical pleasures even though you are here. If you ever hear the idea of pleasure from Torah study, Torah study is not on the highest level. When someone's spending 12 to 18 hours a day studying Torah and really plumbing its depths, which is something that I've experienced in yeshiva, that's what it's all about. There is an ability to tap into a pleasure that is unmatched by anything that the physical world offers. Talmud even talks about how when someone has a pleasure of watching their children grow and flourish, that's a pleasure that doesn't equal, and there's nothing physical that could possibly equal that. That too is, again, a little whiff of Olam pleasures. So again, even though the Mishnah says, 
one second in Olamaba outweighs all the pleasures in this world, there are some ways to kind of get a little sneak peek, a little taste test of Olamaba. We could do kind of a dry run. We could do a test drive in the pleasure of Olamaba, maybe via Torah study, maybe via our children, maybe via the three things that are described in the Talmud in the book of Brachos, page 57b. Now, the mission also told us that in this world, and in this world alone, we can do mitzvos. Once you die, you cannot do any mitzvos. Only in this world can you do mitzvos. Are there any exceptions to that? Is there any way to do mitzvos even after you die? I found some loopholes for y'all as well. The Talmud in the book of Bechoros, page 31b, this is such a beautiful teaching in the Talmud. It quotes in the name of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, someone that we know quite well. He tells us as follows. Every Torah scholar who is quoted by others after they pass, his lips mouth the words of Torah in the grave. So you have a great Torah star, let's say Rabbi Shimon Bar Yechai, he passed away a long time ago. We quote him, we teach his Torah over, in his grave, his lips are moving and mimicking the words of Torah that we're saying. Now, it's important to stress, this does not mean that if you take a sonar and you look on the grave and you won't necessarily see stirring, necessarily, you won't actually see his corpse, his cadaver actually moving. If that's what you came away from this Talmud, you misunderstood the general point. The general point is that even though someone is past, when there's Torah of theirs that's still alive, they're still studying, so to speak, because the Torah that they brought to the world is still being studied, and therefore they found a loophole to the idea that you can only study Torah, teach Torah, do mitzvos when you're alive. They're still alive, so to speak, in their Torah. You know, my personal biggest fear in life, you know, some people are scared of, of snakes. I guess I'm still scared of snakes. Some people are scared of public speaking. I love public speaking. I'm one of those crazy people that love speaking publicly. My biggest fear is that I'm going to die. And not that I'm scared of dying, but I'm scared I'm going to die. And then no one's going to take care of my website and my podcasts. And they're going to go offline because people say, ah, oh, Walby's dead already. Okay. His podcast, they were nice while they lasted. What I want is that as long as possible, I want people, if they're still interested, to still be listening to my Torah podcast. That way, even though I'm dead, I could still be teaching Torah, so to speak, and have my lips moving in the grave, so to speak. In fact, I went to the, uh, I went to the websites, you know, the hosting sites, GoDaddy, HostGator, all the back end of my website and my podcasts. And I would max out the prepayment. I would say, you know what, let me cover the website as far as they let me do it. The problem is they only let me cover it like for five years in advance. So up to 2025, the website is still alive. And I think the other site that covers the, the hosting, it only let me do like three years. It didn't let me extend it further. But th- this is my concern. I'm, I feel like if I'm going to be teaching Torah after I pass, it's an amazing thing. And I want to push it out as long as possible. You know, I have, I have two different thoughts 
just on this topic. Last year, I did, with the help of the Almighty, I did the third year of the Parsha podcast. And every Parsha, we did about an hour. Give me an hour, I'll give you the Parsha. The, the stories, the themes, the narratives, the personalities, some of the lessons. Cover the Parsha in about an hour. So, of course, some Parshios, there's a lot more to talk about, so you have to do a little faster. Some of them you could elaborate more, but that was the general concept. This year, on the Parsha Podcast, you may be aware that every Sunday, I release last year's edition as a rebroadcast. We rebroadcast it again. Some people, they picked it up, you know, halfway through. Some people want to listen to it again. I, be honest with you, forget everything that I said last year, so I listen to it every year again. I figure if I listen to it, maybe someone else would enjoy it as well. So I had I had a debate. Should I kind of set up the rebroadcast ahead of time? That way, God forbid, I'm hit by a train. At least there'll, you know, there'll be a whole year worth of of scheduled releases. That was one thought. Alternatively, I could have said, and this is what I opted to do. No, I'm going to do it week by week. And that way the Almighty knows if he wants to knock me off, I have the force, so to speak, of the fact that I'm contributing towards more Torah study to hopefully keep me alive week after week. So that's, that's my theory. I didn't really pass it on to anyone, the, the deliberation, but that, but that was my thought. But this isn't a powerful idea. Someone is dead. They've passed and their lips are still, so to speak, proverbially moving because they're still teaching Torah. That's one way to buck the trend. That's one way to have a loophole to still teach Torah and to still do mitzvahs, even after you have passed. There's another way. The Talmud, the book of Bava Basra, page 116a, tells us that if you leave a student or a child that's righteous and is doing mitzvahs, that gets reattributed to you on a certain level because you brought that person into the world or you taught that person Torah. So if you think about it, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we would think, you know, they passed away thousands of years ago, their ledger is closed. Their mitzvah, mitzvah tally is finished because they've done all the mitzvahs they can. They've been dead for thousands of years. But no, we are descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and therefore we're the children that are following in their footsteps, hopefully. And every time we do a mitzvah, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they get a bump in heaven. Now, how that works in the math, that's, of course, God's job to figure it out. But this is a powerful idea, even for small people like us. You have a child, you have a student, you have someone that you inspire, and they're doing a mitzvah because you initiated that. Part of it gets attributed, so to speak, to your account And therefore, even after you pass, that account can hopefully still swell. There's, of course, the tradition that for the year after a parent passes, the child says Kaddish for their deceased parent. And every year on the art site, every year on the anniversary of the the parent's passing, they say Kaddish again. What is Kaddish? Kaddish is a prayer. And it's a prayer that deals with a lot of the fundamental questions of who's running the world. And we're talking about God. And when a child makes a declaration of faith in God, who gets a bump in heaven? The person who brought that child into the world. 
And that's why for the year after someone passes, when the soul of the departed is in its most tenuous state, the child says Kaddish to give a little boost to their antecedent, to their parent in heaven. There's another way that this is done, and this is something that everyone's familiar with. When someone makes a donation, let's say, in the merit of the soul of the departed, that too, because there is some goodness, Torah, mitzvot, kindness, charity, whatever it is, that's done in the merit of the deceased, that is attributed to the deceased. Even though, again, they've passed, they personally can't do mitzvot, but stuff could be done to help them in heaven. So, for example, there's a tradition to donate, let's say, Torah books. You donate a Torah book, or even an entire set of Talmud, and then you write on every front page, you write, okay, this book and the study of this book is going to be attributed to this and this person. And you write their name, maybe the year they, the, the year or the date they passed, and the study that's done from that book is going to be, again, partially how it's divided up. That's God's job to figure out. But that is going to be attributed to the deceased. Now, I read something that stuck with me. I read it many, many years ago in a book called Ahavas Chesed, Love of Kindness, written by none other than the Chavetz Chaim, the greatest Jew, one of the greatest Jews of the turn of the century from the 19th into the 20th century. So he writes a book about kindness. And he writes how transformational it is for the soul of the departed when there's, let's say, a set of Talmud that's donated to a shul or to a yeshiva, even better, in their merit. And then he says, I'm talking to you. You should know that when you have your estate, your kids most likely will be thinking about how to get a biggest slice of the pie. They're going to encircle your estate like of like vultures, get the lawyers involved, get the probate done, and they're thinking about themselves. And the poor guy who built the fortune, no one's thinking about them. This is what the Chavetz Chaim writes. He says, what you should do is take a little bit of your money and give it in escrow to someone you could trust, to a friend of yours, to someone who has your best interest in mind, to someone who's not named in your will. And you tell him that when you die, he takes that money and he uses it to buy a set of Talmud and give it to Yeshiva in your merit. Because you know what? Your kids are not going to do it. So that always always stuck with me. If I can say this, I can make a plug. If someone puts torch in their will, that will ensure that when they die, they could continue supporting Torah and mitzvos, and their soul will merit even after their passing. And a side benefit of that is this will probably ensure they'll live a longer life. And here's why. The Talmud tells us that the Satan and the Yetzirah and the angel of death is really one entity. So when someone dies, the angel of death comes and pulls out their soul. How that works, again, the exact kind of mechanics of that is a subject for a different time. But think about it. The force that wants as little Torah and mitzvahs in this world is the same force that's pulling out your soul. So if the angel of death knows, hey, I pulled this guy's soul and they stopped doing mitzvahs, it's great. Win, win, win. 
there's more incentives for that force to pull out your soul. But what happens when the angel of death knows that the second you pull out the person's soul, that's going to generate, that's going to kickstart, that's going to unlock mitzvahs and Torah, they may hesitate. I don't want to knock this guy off. I knock this guy off, then that's going to engender more Torah. I'm going to let them live a couple more years. And by the way, it's proven as someone who's involved in, in a nonprofit and torch, people who put us in their will live forever and ever. <laughs> they just, they, it's a miracle. It's a miracle drug. It's better than ketosis. It's better than t- you're taking your, uh, your, your pills. It's guaranteed. You, you'll just live and live and live. So that's just a plug. These are some ways to build do mitzvahs even after you pass. But in general, you can only do mitzvahs here and you only get reward there. But there's another very important insight from this Mishnah. And maybe this is so obvious, but it's worth pointing out, even though it's obvious. There's a certain hierarchy between these two worlds. We're told there's this world, and then there's the next world. The afterlife, if you will. And here we're told, in this Mishnah, that our objective in this world, in this life, in this corridor, is to prepare to fix ourselves for the next world. And that world is the goal. So there's two worlds. This world, life, and the afterlife. But again, if you read the mission clearly, there's a hierarchy. This world is just a corridor. You're getting ready. The main show is the next world. So my personal pet peeve is to call above the afterlife. That implies that there's life and then there's, okay, there's the after party. There's the encore. Maybe it'll be something left for you. You could have some fun in the afterlife as well. I would say from this Mishnah, we have to rename it. It's not like this world is life and then what happens afterwards is afterlife. Maybe it's the opposite. Maybe this world is is pre-life. And the infinite world, Olamaba, that is life. It's not life to afterlife. It's pre-life preparation, getting yourself ready, adjusting your tie, if you will, preparing, fixing yourself, priming yourself for the world that really matters, which is life. And again, that's obvious from this Mishnah, but I think it bears repeating it, that here is not the goal. Of course, it's the only place that we can prepare for the goal, but this is preparatory We're trying to prepare ourselves for the main stage. But of course, our predisposition, our default, is not to see the world like that. We are engineered to view this world as the goal and to focus our efforts and to arrange our priorities, that our standing in this world is what really matters. The agenda of my body is what really matters. Now, hopefully, we've been trained and we've developed the sensitivity to know, well, the spiritual side matters also. You have to tend to your spiritual half as well. But for the most part, and certainly for the majority of society of humanity, that's not the way we're living. We don't have that. We have the hierarchy messed up. We have the hierarchy inverted. 
this world is life, and then maybe there's the afterlife. Okay, let's not think about it. We don't know too much about that subject. Oh, it's uh, it's an arcane, esoteric subject. It's it's beyond us. Most people have it backwards, if they even have the idea of the afterlife at all on their purview. In Jewish philosophy, the reason why we have it backwards, the reason why we're living, in the words of the Talmud, in an upside-down world, everything's upside-down, everything is exactly the opposite of the way it should be. The reason for that is a concept that we talk about a lot called the Yetzer Hara, evil inclination. The essence of the evil inclination is to invert the worlds, is to make this world primary, and hopefully to get the subject not to think at all about the next world, not to think at all about what happens after they die, not to think at all about what they're really living for. That's the goal. But certainly that this world is the essential one, this is the one that matters, and everything else is really not important. That is the essence of the Yetzirah. That's the essence. And if you study what the Talmud tells us about the Yetzirah, that's what you'll discover. It's trying to get us to look at this world, at the corridor. The corridor is what matters. Of course, ideally, the corridor is a time to prepare. You're, you're heading towards your destination. You're heading towards the ballroom. And then in the corridor, you do whatever it takes to facilitate that journey. So, of course, you have to partake in this world because you need the corridor. You need the corridor to get to the to ballroom. But it's there. Whatever whatever you pick up along the way is fuel for your journey. But the Yetzirah switches it. It makes this world primary, and then by the time you arrive at the ballroom at the banquet, you're just not equipped. You're not prepared. You're not a good candidate because you haven't prepared, and you're not someone who is who is ready, who is primed for that world. I remember when I was a little kid, my father was in, in diamonds. And in New York, in 47th Street, Manhattan... That's where the Diamond District is, and they have the Diamond Dealers Club. All these diamond dealers get together, and they do business, and they and they play checkers and chess, and everyone's there, and, you know, it's like a cool place to hang out. So I remember, I don't know why I wasn't in school, but thinking about my childhood, it probably could have been a lot of different reasons why I wasn't in school, and my father said, okay, come with me, we'll go to the Diamond Dealers Club. I was like, I don't know, 10, 9, get to the door, and there's this big burly guy, like a bouncer. And my father is a member, so he could get in. But there's a rule. You have to be wearing a jacket to enter. You have to wear a jacket. And I'm a little kid. And by my bar mitzvah, I was like, you know, maybe five foot one. I was a little puny little kid. And the guard is insistent. Unless you're wearing a jacket, like a sports jacket, a blazer, you can't get in. So I remember my, my dad had a friend who like worked in that vicinity. So he took me there and we borrowed the guy's jackets. I was like this little kid drowning in some big tan jacket of some other big guy. And I walked in, looked like, you know, like my kids when they wear my jacket today. It's kind of silly, but that's, that's what that person, the person did. And they, they finally eventually let me in wearing the silly jacket. But there's rules. Get to Omaba arrive at the end of the corridor, and if you're not equipped, if you're not ready, if you're not prepared for that world, you're not allowed in the door. You're not allowed in. Sorry, you're not a good candidate. And the Yetzirah, his goal 
is to get you to not be wearing a jacket by the time you arrive at the at the guard. That's his goal. And whatever it takes, focus on everything else in the world besides for earning that jacket and getting ready for for entering. You know, I have an analogy for this. The problem with this analogy is that people from Texas will find it offensive. And people who are not from Texas will be baffled and mystified by it. So I'll try to make everyone happy. So in Texas, there is a gas station called Bucky's. And you say Bucky's to any Texan, they start smiling. Because everyone loves Bucky's. And you travel on any highway in Texas, you'll see, okay, in 98 miles, there's the, the, you see a picture of a beaver, right? It's a beaver. And it's smiling in 98 miles, you'll finally arrive at the gas station Bucky's. And he tells anyone else in the world, what do you mean? Like if you're driving like a cross-country drive, like you're looking forward to 98 miles to have a gas station? Yes. Why? Because normally gas stations, especially on long road trips, they're terrible. You go to the Shell gas station, you, you're pretty sure you're going to get mugged. If you survive it, the bathroom's a dump. The place is grimy. There's maybe a bulletproof glass between you and the cashier. It's just disgusting. But you know what? You're driving and you need fuel. So you have to just clench your nose and suffer the indignity of having to partake in that rest stop and get your jazz and get you go to the bathroom and buy your buy your five-hour energy to get a drink, whatever it is, get a coffee, and continue along the journey. Comes along Butties and they say, no. The bathrooms are going to be so clean, you could lick the toilet. And it's going to be enormous, not just a small, dingy little place. We're going to have, I don't know, 200 places you can fill up your gas. And it's going to have uh, gourmet food. And it's going to be huge. And we're going to sell memorabilia. Like people are going to put in the back of their car a sticker, I went to Bucky's. They're rethinking the whole thing. And everyone's so happy that the people in Texas, they love it. Everyone smiles. You say the word Bucky's. People out of Texas have never seen it. So they're like, what are you talking about? Google it. Bucky's. The Yetzirah is Bucky's. Why? You're heading towards a journey. And you know what? You need fuel. You got to pick up stuff to get to your destination. But comes along Bucky's and says, no, this gas station is not for fuel. It's for everything else. Yeah, of course you get fuel, but you're coming here because you want to go to Bucky's. This is the destination. They've taken the necessary evil, so to speak. The fact that you have to partake in the corridor to get to your destination. And they've transformed it into a destination of its own. So like I said, people from Texas would be like, oh no, that's terrible. I love Bucky's. Don't, don't. Rabbi, take on everything else. Just please leave Bucky's alone. But no, that's the idea. Again, it's an analogy. That something that could be viewed in two ways. It could be viewed as essential. It itself is the destination. The corridor itself is what matters. That's what the Yitzhak says. And of course, in Torah, we're trying to be trained that no, this world's the corridor. Yes, you need to go down the corridor. Of course, if you starve yourself, if you don't have a living, if you don't take care of yourself, if you don't tend to your existence in the corridor, you're not going to make it. And that's not what the Almighty wants. There's mitzvahs in the Torah to take care of yourself. But don't make it the goal. It's fuel that you need to get along with the journey. And the Yetzirah says, no, 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 it's not just fuel. It's what matters. It's the destination. Our sages tell us, this world is akin to darkness. Similar to night. It's dark. 
we're going through a journey. It's a perilous journey. And our vision is going to be limited. Why is it dark? Why don't we have clarity in what we're trying to do in this journey down the corridor? It's because of the Eight Sahara. That's what the Eight does. It creates murkiness. It creates obfuscation. It creates opacity. It creates obstacles along the way. It creates all kinds of distractions to make us not see clearly. And the Talmud tells us, the book of Sota, page 21a, and incidentally, my grandfather used to say, if someone wants to become a true Torah scholar, you have to spend a lot of time in this particular teaching in the Talmud. Sota 21a, we're going to give a partial quote of this Talmud. Quotes a verse in Proverbs, Ner mitzvah v'torah are. Mitzvah is a candle. Torah is light. Torah and mitzvos, they are the illumination to penetrate darkness. It gives us an, an analogy. It gives us a parable. There's a man walking through a desert at night. And there's all kinds of dangers that are along the way. It's dark. You don't see the holes in the ground. You don't see the various thistles and thorns along the way. There's animals roaming. There's bandits roving. You don't know where you're going. You don't have any markers along the way. There's all kinds of dangers. You're, you're, you're laden with perils. But you know what? If you find a candle, if you find a torch, you can see a little bit. And you can be saved from a little bit of the dangers. And it's daybreak, and there's light. You're saved from even more dangers. And then you arrive at a crossroads, and you're saved from all the dangers. Mitzvah is a candle. It helps penetrate a little bit of the darkness brought about by the Yitzhara. Torah is daybreak. It gets rid of almost all the problems. And then when someone becomes a true Torah scholar, they arrive at the crossroads, so to speak, they have vanquished the darkness of the Eight Sahara. Without Torah, without mitzvos, we're blinded by the Eight Sahara. And we don't realize that he's duping us into thinking, into misattributing this world as being primary. And because there's darkness, and because we're being blinded by him, we don't see clearly, and we're bumping into every possible obstacle. And the goal of Torah is to get us to realize that this Mishnah should be the guiding inside of our lives. My grandfather, blessed memory, he used to say that he once witnessed something that was so startling, was so shocking, that he took this lesson from it. He said he once saw an animal that was blind. And he said, it was so horrifying watching this animal. Because when, God forbid, if there's a human who's blind, well, how, do, how do they tread? They, they walk very gingerly. Maybe they have someone helping them, or they have a stick. They, they are aware of all the dangers of going in dark, of going in unaided. If there's an animal, doesn't have that intellect, doesn't realize it's blind, so it's running full speed and smashing into every obstacle that could possibly exist. And he said it was a horrifying sight. And then he said this point, 
vis-a-vis the most critical idea of how someone should shape their lives. This Mishnah. We're like the blind animal, so to speak. We're blind, we're living in this world of darkness, and we don't know it! And therefore we're smashing into every obstacle, because we don't, we're not walking gingerly. We're not taking into account that this is a journey at night. We don't realize that we're blind. And maybe if we did realize we were blind, we'd try to find the candle, try to find the daybreak, try to find the crossroads, try to compensate for the fact that we're in this world, the corridor, and we're being convinced by the most persuasive entity in history, in humanity, in the entire world, I don't know about that, but certainly the one that has pole position within us, to mistreat this world, make it a destination instead of necessary journey of preparation for the ballroom. The commentaries talk about this Mishnah a lot. Obviously, you could sense that this is a very big and important subject. Commentaries even point out that it's almost logical. The idea of Olamaba, the idea of an etch world, is almost necessarily acknowledged by anyone that believes in God. Because if you believe in God, you have to believe in the fact that the Almighty is going to run things in a way that is fitting, so to speak, for Him. In this world, we see so much chaos, disorder, entropy. We see so many righteous people suffering. We see the wicked flourishing. It's almost logical, once you accept the premise of God, to accept the premise of the afterlife. Moral even points out that the existence of the afterlife is accepted even by the Gentiles. And he adds, if anyone who is wise, who is discerning, who has knowledge, and investigates the subject critically, they themselves, even without Torah, will arrive at that destination. Yet, people don't live their lives guided by this principle. I want to add another point to this. If someone was able to invent a time travel machine and they go back to the year 2000. So one thing they know for sure is that the Y2K bug vastly overrated. And they'll, they'll know the future, right? So, so what, what is the prudent thing to do when you know the future? So the one thing that you don't do, and this is another analogy that will resonate for us Texans, the one thing you don't do is you don't take all your money and invest in Enron. Maybe you short it. You don't invest in Enron when you know it's going down to zero. You know that it's a house of cards. You know that it's a Ponzi scheme. You know that it's not legit. Because you are armed with knowledge of the future, you can make better bets, so to speak, better investments in where you want to put your money, where you want to put your time. What are the industries going to take off? You might want to buy Google. You might want to invest in the smaller thing called Facebook, right? You know the future. And therefore, you know how to make investments. Vis-a-vis the destiny of humanity. What's going to happen to me over the next hundred years? Do I know the future? Do we know the future of our destiny? Is there anyone listening that doesn't know that they're going to die? Everyone knows that, right? So, congratulations. You're a time traveler. You know the future. And you know that whatever investment you make in the corridor, so to speak, it's Enron at a certain point. If it's not linked to your spiritual side, it's just a question of time before it goes down to zero. And again, we're not 
saying, and that's not what the mission is saying, to neglect the corridor. But to realize what is the goal here. And again, the Yetzirah is very adept at creating this virtual reality. He's very good at it. But this logic, simple logic, it penetrates all the darkness. And again, this is not something you have to have Torah for it to resonate with you. You don't need Torah for this. You are a time traveler. You're coming back from the future, and the future is that your body's going to stop working, and it's going to be hopefully buried in the ground. You know that. Okay, now make investments based upon that foreknowledge. And you should know already that there's going to come a point in time where your body's going to go the way of Enron and WorldCom and Lehman Brothers and Bear Stearns. That's happening. Invest accordingly. You're a time traveler. Now, I hinted at the fact that there are a lot of subjects about Olam that are relevant, germane to the subject at large. Our Mishnah is very basic, just the relationship between this world and the next world. But there's many other questions that obviously arise in this important subject. I want to share with you one cool insight that is tangentially related to this Mishnah. In Hebrew, there are no proper, or at least biblical Hebrew, at least what's called Lashon HaKodesh, the holy language. So modern Hebrew is different. But in, in the in the classic Mishnahic Hebrew, if you will, there are no words for the reproductive organs. Instead, what the Mishnah and Talmud use, they use euphemisms. And in fact, the Rambam, the Rambam tells us that the reason why Hebrew is called the holy language, it's because it has no proper nouns for the genitalia and the reproductive organs. Okay, so what are the names that are given to that the the hardware, if you will, of reproduction? So it's really interesting. The uterus in the Mishnah is called a kever. Kever means a grave. Is that a coincidence? I don't know. What about our Mishnah? Our Mishnah tells us there's a prosdar. Prosdar means a corridor. In the Talmud and the Mishnah, the word for the birth canal, if you will, is prosdar. So, just a brief insight, cool thing, related to some of the other questions that we posed. If you want to know how the timeline works, you know, there's something that goes through, shall we say, the birth canal and ends up in the uterus, right? That goes through the prose that ends up in the kever, right? This mission is describing us as going through a prose dar, and arriving at the ballroom. But how that crossover happens, it's not really, we're not really told exactly what is the handoff, if you will, from the prosdar, from the corridor to the, to the tracklin, to the, to the banquet hall. 
But again, if you examine the other Talmudic hints that we get, we discover that we go down the prosdar and you end up in the kever, you end up in the grave, you go down the prosdar in the grave, and just like elsewhere by reproduction, you go down the prosdar and you end up in the kever, which is the uterus, and then something happens, something gets developed, something maybe is added to the mixture, and what comes out nine months later is a brand new human that's born, that's not at all comparable to what went in, but on a certain level it is. On a DNA level, you know, what a man contributes towards reproduction, on a very microscopic scale, is the exact same thing, if you will, with the other ingredients, of what comes out. But if you take the putrid drop, so to speak, that is the biological primordial matter that makes a baby and you compare that to the baby, those are not the same thing. But they, or at least what goes in, contains the raw ingredients, if you will, of what emerges from the kever, from the grave, sometime later. And I would imagine that what we're being hinted to over here is that when someone goes into the grave, we believe that they're going to come out. We believe in resurrection. But what comes out is as similar to what went in as in another, so to speak, dynamic where something goes in to a cavern, to a grave, to a uterus, and something comes out. And yes, they're similar, but you have to be a biologist to see any similarity. You have to look at a microscope to see any similarity, but they are almost exactly the same thing, but they couldn't be more different. And that's what happens in the cavern. And I think that will help us kind of, it's a different subject for our Mishnah, but our Mishnah does use those magical words, prosdar. And what that I think is revealing to us is that when someone dies and someone's placed, buried, planted, if you will, in the ground, in the event that they're a good seed, if you will, a good seed for something to sprout for Olam Abba, they're going to spend that time developing, growing, maturing from that little kernel into the new human, so to speak, that is primed for Omaba. That's a little secret, again, but it's related to our Mishnah, but it, it relates to the more technical question of what happens after you die and how does that, you know, how how do we go from the prosdar, from the corridor to the ballroom? I think we have a hint in our Mishnah. But of course, that is a much bigger subject. Now, just to conclude, I want to give you something else to read. So if you look at the book called Mesilas Yasharim, Path of the Just, and when it was reprinted, it was reprinted as Way of the Upright. And this book is considered the fundamental book of Musr, of Jewish ethics. Chapter 1, the very beginning of chapter 1, lays this all out to perfection. The idea of us investing time here and earning the ability to flourish in the afterlife, what we call life, working in the pre-life, in the corridor to prepare for life itself. He lays it out very beautifully. I would advise everyone, if they have a chance, to read just a few first paragraphs of 
Masil Sharm, Path of the Just, written by Rabbi Moshe Chaim Lutzato. In addition, I mentioned earlier, there is a primer, there is a sweeping treatise on Olam Abba, written by the Rambam, as an introduction to the 10th chapter of the book of Mishnah of Sanhedrin. It's a very long piece. I actually have a copy of it in English that I can email to you. If you email me, rabbiwobajima.com, I'm happy to send it to you. And he really covers the subject with tremendous scope. And it's a very critical piece because he deals with a lot of other questions that arise tangentially. But that is a great way to get a sense of this very critical topic. He talks about, you know, what is the reward, how to understand the reward, what is the nature of spiritual reward, why should we be doing it? Should we be doing it for the reward? Should we be doing it for other reasons? Altruism. He talks about how to actually unpack a teaching of the Talmud. It is not easy reading, I must confess, but it is critical to understand the Jewish subject of eschatology. And I also want to let the audience know that, please God, within the next couple of months, I am going to be publishing a book on this subject. It deals with the most important question, again, that I think you could ask yourself. How do I get a ticket? How do I get invited? How do I be on the invite list when I arrive at the end of the corridor? How do I make sure that I end up with all the tools needed to get into Olam Abba? That's the subject of the book, Please God, that I'm going to publish within the next couple of months. I've been working on it for a long time. I would say uh, north of five years. And I'm very excited to to release that. I would also add, not exactly easy reading, but it's such an important subject, it might be worth it. So my email address is rabbiwolbyajima.com. This was such a joy and a pleasure to plumb this very critical Mishnah, this very critical subject with y'all today. And I look forward to any questions, any comments, and any feedback.